Ahoy everybody! Thank you for tuning in to Airborne Entrepreneur. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning into my podcast. And uh, I would like to welcome my special guest today. And it's Aaron, he's living in Perth. And we know each other through our friend. And I was really interested to invite him to today podcast because he has a very, very special job, what not probably a lot of people in Perth or generally in the world have. And uh, he's working for a child bank. And I would like him to start maybe just telling us something about you. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much for making this today. Thank you, Alex. Uh, happy to happy to join you and uh, and, and have a discussion. Um, look, I'm not sure it's such a special job. It's different, um, as you point out. It has its own unique challenges. And um, look, candidly, I I at, look at the outset. I'll say I enjoy it. I love what I do, and that that will be something we we talk about. And in terms of um, uh, talking about Rothschild, uh, Rothschild and Co, uh, as we are currently uh, branded, um, you know, an important part of the discussion, and I'm pleased to say it, you know, I'm very proud to work for them. Uh, it's unusual to be able to say that. Uh, I've worked for a number of other banks uh, through my career, and I would struggle to say with the same uh, emphasis that I would be proud to work for them. Um, there, there are certainly some some elements about this group that, that are quite unique, so I'd be very happy to, to, to capture that in our discussion today. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I had a few comments and people are coming to me with uh, some, some things that, oh, you should ask that, and you should, you should ask if they are <laughs> ruling the world. <laughs> and, and there were some, some funny theories about like uh, Rothschilds actually control the weather. <laughs> you can probably start there. <laughs> um, not quite. Um, but it, look, it's, let, let, let's, let's, let's start with the fact that the firm uh, or the family group has been operating as an advisory, as a banking group now uh, for some centuries. It, 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 it is extremely unusual, uh, in fact, unique. Uh, for a single organization to remain viable, to remain profitable, uh, and to remain intact over hundreds of years of work. Uh, and, you know, there is something in terms of how they work. Uh, we, we all as individuals work with a, a long-term perspective. You know, our clients are just that, they are people we wish to retain uh, through, through time. We wish to build their businesses and work with them. Uh, no, you know, the family can't change the weather, but actually as a long-term firm, a firm that looks to uh, a client's business through its life cycle, uh, we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, we talk about creativity, uh, about rigor, uh, about delivering real thought leadership to our clients to position their businesses, not to meet their quarterly profit call, not just to meet their annual uh, general meeting and please their shareholders, uh, but to position their businesses through time. Uh, you know, one of the families, family members many years ago said, you know, it, it, it takes a great deal of boldness and creativity to create vast amounts of wealth and 10 times as much wit to retain that wealth. Uh, and that's, that's what has sustained the family business. Uh, it is true that we take that same sort of rigor to our clients. Now, in the context, perhaps, of climate change, uh, we're advising a lot of clients towards <laughs> change policies. Maybe there we can influence the weather. Uh, but no, they, they're yet to change it. Yeah, thank you very much. I think that's amazing to share something like 
the creativity is so important in any business. And I know a lot of businesses become so busy, they forget that actually creativity is really important part of their business and everyday life. But look, it, it is a global business. And I think that's the, the point you make. It needs to be. Yeah. Uh, clients operate in global businesses and, you know, not to advertise the firm, but it, 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 it is their belief that you can't give good advice unless you know what's going on on the ground. Uh, yeah. And that needs of people uh, around the world. We need to have not only people, but senior people. We need to have people that are experts in their particular sectors. And uh, just just picking up on your point, brief advert for the firm, but uh, you know, many banks or financial firms tend to, to, to have a very um, uh, dramatic pyramid structure, one or two people at the top. And, and you know, you very, very, very quickly come down to a large mass of people working uh, juniors, uh, et cetera, nothing, nothing wrong with that. The Rothschild model is almost the opposite. It's almost inverted. Uh, it is way more senior people. Um, and that is so that relationships can be held with, with, with levels of government, uh, with policymakers, uh, with, with universities, with people researching, uh, with companies, not only your clients, but other companies. We, we can only be as creative as we can be if we are talking to as many people as possible and having real conversations. Um, and and that, that leads to a need for confidentiality. It's one of the other key elements of the firm. We are, we are very discreet. It is still a family run. It is still a private business. Uh, discretion is absolutely important to be able to have an honest conversation with someone. Where they share, we can take that information, we can guide clients in terms of our advice, uh, but you certainly can't be abusing that trust. And that element of trust uh, is, is something that is, is, is really enforced across all of our staff, um, uh, to have trustworthy individuals, independent thinkers, uh, creative thinkers, intellectual thinkers, um, uh, but trust underlying everything is, is, is really what, what we promote. Yeah. Honestly, this is, uh, it's coming back to any kind of business when you think about that. Like, I, I love when you said that it's actually not like a pyramid, but basically it's like a straight line. That means let's build up professionals, leaders, you know, and, and they can work for themselves independently. It's uh, when we talk about creating of relationships, I, I actually pointed out that yesterday in my video, I said people, or business owners and leaders, they need to understand everything is based on, on relationship. And when you probably work with people that you're closing up massive, massive businesses or deals, you have to have trust. Like no one will ever say yes, you know, and shake your hand when they don't trust you. And this is something that uh, I'll probably ask first around the deals. Like, like, can you just let us know like what do you actually do or how you create or making the deals? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> good, good question. Just, just quickly to, to position um, myself. So I, I have spent my career, um, uh, 23 years or thereabouts now, uh, covering the oil and gas energy sector. So for me, I only look at oil, gas and energy. So as we talk about deals and things today, uh, I'll be talking in that area because that's all I do. Uh, and 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 that that's important in terms of the points we are talking about in terms of trust and and, and how we make deals come together. Uh, after some time, you know, there's a recognition of uh, expertise. Dare I say, there's there's an element of of, of trust and uh, you know relationship that's being built up through familiarity. Uh, you know, I have been meeting with the same people, the same clients, or 
people they know, uh, in my case for 23 years. Uh, oil and gas is a huge industry globally, it's one of the largest, but in fact it's very small when you think about the number of people who uh, in a position to, to, to do large deals, to do large transactions, and your reputation does get ahead of you. If you do a bad deal, if you have been dishonest, um, if you in, in a negative way had influenced a transaction, that reputation gets ahead of you. And that's what really, you know, it takes a lifetime to build. Uh, it's why I have said I am particularly proud to to work with Rothschild because they, they have the same principles as I do, which is about the relationship-driven honesty and trust. Uh, I, I'm not willing to, to, to risk the, the, the quarter century almost of my career for another firm's benefit to do a bad deal. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's important personally. So there's an element of personality as well as the, the firm. So that's the sector I work in. And you know, large deals, yes, look, the oil and gas business, is significant in terms of geopolitics, of course, uh, issues of oil price, uh, issues of re re retaining supply, will the Saudis to reply to the United States, what do we do with Venezuela? So this is a very complicated situation. So deals that we do are in influenced politically, uh, there's a lot of geopolitics about it. Uh, it is an incredibly capital intensive business. Nothing we do is cheap in oil and gas. Everything yeah measured in hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Yes. Uh, so what do we do and what, 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 what do I mean when we do a deal? Uh, that deal could be a corporate uh, transaction. It could be a um, uh, you know, the, the, the merger of, of Royal Dutch Shell and BG, uh, Bridge Gash, multi, multiple billion dollar deal. Uh, it, it could be a lot smaller, uh, but still large. It could be the acquisition of you know, a large equity stake in a particular uh, LNG project. We have a lot of those in Australia. Um, yeah. uh, Woods are looking to introduce investors into their, their Pluto expansion project, yeah. uh, which could be worth hundreds of millions to billions of dollars for the, for the buyer. So a lot of what we do is very specific on that merger and acquisition side. I'll call it my real estate business. It's like buying and selling houses. It's just a bit bigger, a bit more complicated. <laughs> Um, we also do uh, spend time advising on uh, debt and equity. So obviously to make a transaction of that size, client might need to borrow money or raise money in the equity markets. Uh, and that's a separate piece of advisory yeah. work to position. It's the money side of it. Uh, and the third element, and this, this is where a majority of the time ends up being spent with guiding a company as to why they should do that business. Should they... Uh, invest in uh, Woodside's upcoming LNG project in Australia? Uh, should they transition their company towards a new energy agenda, towards renewables, etc.? Uh, and those questions of should they, why would they, could they, are more creative. This is the creative part of our strategic advisory business. Now, ultimately, we like to get to a position where we can do a transaction at the end of it. That's what we get paid for. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, you know, many bankers, and this is where I <clears throat> differentiated Rothschild, many bankers are always pushing to get to the transaction point. It's where they get paid. So if you ask a banker, should I do this deal? The answer is, and this is how you trained, it's always yes. If a client says, should I do something? The answer is yes, because that means yeah. you get it's a little bit like asking a dentist, do you need a checkup? Yeah, um, of course. Yes, you need it. <laughs> 
asking a lawyer, do you need advice? Yes. You know, so one of the things we need to do, uh, and this is the differentiator, I think, between Rothschild and, and some others, is we say no probably as much as we say yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, when someone comes to you with a question, should we do this? Sometimes the right answer is no. Sometimes the answer is no, not at that price level. No, not now. Uh, and that's very difficult because we don't get paid for saying no. Uh, but this is the point about this being a long-term business. If you said no at the right times, that person may come back later. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had situations where someone comes back 10 years later. You know, I've given good advice not to do something. And 10 years later, they come back and say, finally, we're in a position to do some advice and we'd love you to do it. And you'll get paid yeah. for it this time around. Now, 10 years is a long time, but it's the way we have to measure it. Um, look, the deals by, by their nature can be, yes, you know, many billions of dollars. They can involve uh, many countries. They involve a lot of assets. They, they involve obviously a lot of people and staff yeah. underlying them. So they, they are large, they're complicated and, and you need to be sensitive to, to all of those issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another question with that, what you already mentioned, because it all comes to the point that is happening. Similar things should happen in normal business, any kind of business, not just in your child bank and all should be based on trust. And I love when you say that because this is what I'm trying to like educate people that they need to build a relationship because no one will really come back to you and give you a referral or, you know, like when, when you say yes, always, even though you, you know, you can't help the person. They will never come back. They will never refer you, and you will probably lose a lot of money. Principles that um, one of my key mentors uh, taught me when I entered this business, uh, into in the banking business, um, about thirteen years ago. I did ten years in the oil industry before coming specifically into banking. Uh, one of the first things he told me, very simple lesson, was you know deals uh, are only ever made between people. Deals are never, ever made between companies. Oh, thank uh, you for that. <laughs> that. That struck me as a very odd statement at the time. It was sort of contrary to the way the industry is built uh, to think. It is contrary when you sit in an oil company, you have layers and layers of process and protocol, yes. procedures and committees and things that teach you how to get a deal done. Uh, but not not once in there is the statement of that they're, they're, they're made between people. So. You know, I advise on that basis. I make sure things at a point have people involved yeah. and people know each other, people make decisions. Um, obviously, a deal is complex, so there are multiple stages where you then have a lot of people doing a lot of due diligence and a lot of documentation and a lot of work. Yeah. All of that stuff has to happen. Um, but I, I've learned through time that if you do not have the principles of the, the deal, the principles of the company or, or, or government or wherever it may be, talking and at least shaking hands at least face to face you may as well give up because the chance of your deal getting complete is very very low indeed some technicality will get in its way there'll be an argument etc uh, I, I i i i messed with um an, an ex-colleague of mine he's an all right banker i, I don't mind him uh, but i i outfoxed him certainly on a deal he was making it very very difficult for my client to uh, negotiate a transaction to buy a large package of assets and he was being an annoying advisor he was blocking us from getting to the decision makers of his client etc uh, I, I knew his clients the chief executive was a great fan of rugby uh, and i sent my senior client uh, to Murrayfield in, in Scotland. It, it was a long trip from Asia to Scotland, knowing full well that they'd be at the same rugby match together. 
and uh, we engineered it such that they would uh, meet each other there. Uh, and, and during the halftime break, the deal got done. Uh, instructions okay. were issued to the bankers back in Australia. Why are you blocking these guys? Why are you getting in their way? I need it done by the end of the week. Uh, so there's a huge amount of work that still has to get done to get to that point. But yes, absolutely. You know, it, it takes people to, to get it done on a handshake at halftime during the rugby. <laughs> Because I know, actually, I have a question before we will start some theories. I have a question about, because I know that was, I read through annual report just to kind of have an idea what the board meeting looks like. And I know there is a lot of influences that you have from, of course, government, because I guess political situation is so important and there's a lot of changes. And I know there was something mentioned around like America and China deal, like something changing the trade. Is, is that something significant that we could talk about or... Well, we can certainly we, we, we can certainly um, uh, talk about elements of, of US China uh, trade relations, which um, the, the, the cross border um, uh, deal making activity between China and the US is a very significant uh, yeah. part of the, the global business just because there is such a large amount of trade. Yeah. Um, it, 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 of course, is influenced by the politics week in week out if the if the Chinese have, have, have deployed military through some of the disputed areas of the South China Sea, that may have a knock-on effect to trade. So there is the day-to-day -day noise that gets in the way all of the time. Uh, then there is, a, that's the short term, the, the, the medium term is perhaps the political life cycle of the current players. Uh, obviously, we've, we've just seen a change in, in president or will be seeing a change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 23rd of January or, or, or whenever inauguration yeah. Um, and that will shift the medium term agenda simply in terms of how, how we expect uh, 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 trade to flow. We saw that very acutely uh, on election day where it looked like the result was going a Republican direction yeah. uh, or a deterioration in the, value, in the value of the Chinese currency immediately. Uh, there was a recognition that that would likely mean additional tariffs and an additional block to trade. Uh, and that swung very quickly, of course, as we all watch the, the, the election. And that's the midterm, yeah. that, that's the relationship of the current incumbents. And look, then there is the long term, and, and, and the long term sort of needs to see right across this. Uh, and, and this looks to, um, in my sector, energy in particular, uh, you know, the United States is becoming a very significant exporter of gas, uh, LNG, liquid natural gas. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And, and that, that creates a long-term ground for uh, trade cooperation or trade dispute. Uh, at this point, uh, the Chinese companies are not buying that gas as a general rule, uh, and that is having a negative impact on those businesses in the United States. It's driving the prices down of the gas. Yeah. We all need it. And there will be a point where this negotiation, which is playing out over time to influence prices, uh, will change. So these are longer term factors. Um, all of that plays into you know, the way we make transactions happen. Beijing is a location pre-COVID where I would visit probably once a fortnight thereabouts. Uh, and you know, we would be dealing with our uh, typically state-owned enterprises there, one of the groups I would yeah. advise. Uh, and yes, you're right, you know, you, we would be doing a certain line of work for them and then we'd, we'd show up to a meeting, the senior representative would, would arrive and say, right, there's been a new change in government policy. We're, we're no longer going this way, we're going that way. Yeah. Uh, 
change on the spot uh, and we need to react to it. As a general matter, um, as I say, we, it's very hard to advise in the short term. It's, it's a, you react to the middle term, but we've got to advise across the, the long term trade yeah. trends is significant and remains cooperation and trade. Yeah. Then the, basically you're prepared probably for both options. I believe that is a huge prediction and huge planning uh, in front. Yeah. That's right. We, we need to run a business, so we need to be yeah. of the short and medium term. And quite often simply making a business plan will say, right, look, let's let's not prioritize a yeah. lot of work right now. You know, it, it, there's too much turbulence. Nothing is really going to happen. A lot of changes, yeah. A lot of changes. Let's let's focus on the longer term deals. Let's let's focus on sustainable deals. It comes back to the principle of sort of long-term relationship driven and wanting our clients' business to last a long time as well. We will be selective in choosing what we believe to be sustainable deals, deals that will hold together, deals that companies will look back on and say, we're happy with that five years down the road. Uh, we, we do try very much to avoid those deals which are driven by short-term political uh, political reasons that, you know, come 18 months, come two years down the road, everyone will look back and say, gee, we wasted a lot of money there. Yeah. Uh, we where we can we'd rather not be associated with yeah with that. it makes sense and also it's going probably with the, with the values that you mentioned you know like trust and relationship it's it's usually long term and uh when we talk about coronavirus because i know that was a lot of lot of things changed in the world and uh i know that was yeah, like you already mentioned that in in your annual report in 2019 that actually that will be consequences from coronavirus that means probably the board of directors already knew that is actually happening even though i guess uh, general public didn't have any idea and i also heard another few stories and uh and people that were talking about actually that we already had like 10 years coronavirus and and we know people are really like like that that majority of people is they're not dying uh, the minority of people dying and it's basically probably something that we can compare with with uh, with a flu and i just want to know like from from if you may you know say your opinion i don't know but there will be probably something because i know that is a huge uh, huge thing but that's why i ask about us and china trades and and changes is there any possibility that that, it, that was used for for like pushing the changes, you know, like all coronavirus, all, all that bubble? Yeah, um, look, I'll, I'll express a personal opinion um, here. There is no, you know, house view, uh, and certainly, yeah. certainly no house view that to indicate that there is a underlying uh, conspiracy. That said, you know. The world, the players within it, companies, governments, regulators are creative. They need to be, uh, and 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 it's it's fair to say that everybody will exploit the situations to their advantage. Uh, it is clear, in my personal view, <clears throat> that elements of the COVID nineteen response have been exaggerated, and that exaggeration leads to an environment where you could exploit a particular agenda. Uh, whether that be um, uh, looking at additional uh, regulations uh, to local industries, whether it be, of course, uh, uh, removal of cash currencies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many, many things that people talk about as being, yeah. uh, you know, the reason that sort of COVID-19 was put in place. Look, I, I, I don't have any reason to believe COVID-19 was put in place to achieve those. I think people have reacted very quickly um, 
to push particular agendas. Certainly back in February, March, when this was playing out, I sat down with a number of my uh, friends, but also colleagues, uh, to really just brainstorm openly and say, well, what, what could take place at this point? Where are we going to see significant shifts? Uh, and, and clearly areas of <clears throat> biotechnology, areas of transport, particularly airline transport, uh, obviously, as we are, we're zooming today, a lot of just office <clears throat> related issues, uh, real estate, uh, particularly commercial real estate as it relates to retail businesses and things which were already on a downward trend. You know, these were areas that were clearly going to accelerate further. Uh, and if you, you know, a lot of people have been pushing those things to, to get them to, to get to a new position. It just became very clear that this would provide the environment to push some of them over the edge, you know, make it irreversible. We'll see where we come out in terms of, of that. Uh, it, it, it is the case for sure, in my opinion, that people have indeed pushed it. I think that some responses to COVID-19 have been exaggerated uh, and that played into the, into the hands of those who want to push a particular uh, agenda. Uh, was COVID-19 um, well understood early on? Personal observation, no, but you know, I, I think we, we fell to it in around March <clears throat> and then it became very clear that this was going to be something that, that could be used to, uh, to shift significantly uh, people's opinion, business, trade flows and all sorts of things. Yeah, a lot of yeah, definitely a lot of changes in businesses and and how people actually creating relationships even online. There was definitely shift uh, to use more online than offline, and uh, I absolutely agree. It changed transport transportation so much, and uh, well, probably your life changed as well as a lot because I I know we talk about that that you basically travel every week. <laughs> somewhere right. can you tell us more about that because that's probably a huge change how you work with your team now how all this is happening in Rothschild you know bang it's big change we're, we're working with team and clients and being effective in the job um you're you're right we've we've you know my average working week based based in Perth uh but with a responsibility to to, to run the oil and gas practice across all of Asia uh, would mean that I would tend to travel to two or three countries in Asia a week. Um, some days, four days away, some days, five days, some days, six days, whatever yeah. it was, every week uh, traveling. Um, uh, I got to know the people at Perth Airport very well. It's a small airport and um, it's it, it's strange, but you, you're known by name and you're recognized and, you know, they know I'm there every week. And, and it, it was just the cycle that I was accustomed to. Um, indeed, it is being close to team members uh, to guide them to work with them look that can be done at, at a distance team members are people you know very well you know that's relatively easy to pick up through electronic means uh, yeah. video phone calls the reality is it is so much more inefficient however uh, and i and i don't mean to sound um uh, rude but of course you you start a phone call you sort of have to schedule it. You schedule it to make sure the other person is ready to be able to take it. You then almost have an obligation to ask how they are, how is their family, what are they doing? And you waste 10 minutes on uh, social chit chat that doesn't need to take place. And as I said, I don't mean to be rude because that stuff's important, but in an office, you can walk past someone's desk and see that they're, they're not working on something, not on a phone call. And if you just need to raise an idea with them or ask a question, you can just do so quickly. It's yeah. creative, it's spontaneous. You deal with an issue on the spot. 
now <clears throat> I will check, I'll schedule the meeting, we'll get to the point and the spontaneity is lost and things become far more formal. So they're, they're, I find it inefficient, but it is workable. Uh, dealing with clients and relationship is, is, is nigh on impossible um, electronically. We all got terribly excited about Zoom calls and team calls and all the rest of it, and we all we all did that. Uh, very quickly, we, we we shut down the video component of that. I think we all got sick of seeing each other in our pajamas and <laughs> what people are doing in their house. Into uh, bandwidth concerns get in the way, just in terms of internet connection. No matter how good they are, no matter how you know, it just takes one or two people sitting there. You can see their image frozen. And you just wonder, are they hearing me? Are they not hearing me? Am I talking to myself? Am I not? So that quickly devolved back to telephone calls, uh, which then you don't have the nuance of body language. You don't, you, there are challenges, yes. there are difficulties, um, and, it, and it just doesn't happen. I, I, one of my state-owned clients in Indonesia was, was very, they had a good joke about this as a small thing, that I, I, they had not selected me Rothschild for a particular assignment a, a piece of work we really thought we we had won from them and it was a disappointment uh, but it's actually important for me to understand why we didn't win that you know it's okay that we didn't but why didn't we we were well positioned we I need to get a little bit of feedback a to improve b to understand uh, and of course the, the the official guidelines uh, particularly from state-owned enterprises, that you can't get any feedback. And you just don't get it. The decision is taken. It's taken in a formal uh, procurement. <laughs> and it's done. You just take it. And, and I, I had no choice, but we were on a Zoom call and there were multiple team members there, including with the senior uh, executive. And I did ask for the feedback and the, the relevant sort of deputy gave the formal answer, which is we're not, not allowed to give you any feedback, I'm afraid. You had a good submission, da, 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 thank you for your efforts, blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, gee, that, that makes it hard. You know, you can't give me any hints. And the, the, the chief executive sort of intervened and said, Aaron, as per normal, as it always happens, I authorize my deputy to give you a full and frank feedback. As he walks you into the elevator and walks you out of the office and you have a coffee together over the road. And we had a laugh because of course I was in Perth, they were, they were in Jakarta and we knew that it was not possible, but it, it was just a very stark reminder. That's how relationships work sometimes. It's, it's on a handshake, it's in a brief discussion, it's brief messages, nothing inappropriate, but that's what moves things forward. And that element is completely lost at the moment. The ability to, to just do general networking is completely yeah. uh, and general networking if you're to be an effective advisor it, it, it's not about gaining secrets it's about gaining insight and nuance to talk to a government official a regulator uh, other businesses just to see what they're hearing see what they're thinking see what what's going on in a local market what do they think about a deal why did some why do we think a company did the following what is a trend in this area none of that is is, is easy to gather from a distance. You, you get what you get in the newspaper or the online media, uh, but that's not the detailed on-ground feedback that we would usually, whether we, we require to effectively advise. So the longer this goes without being able to travel, the less and less effective you know, I can become, and that becomes a frustration, uh, a real frustration. So it, yeah, it, it has had a very dramatic impact on yeah. uh, how our business is run. Um, as a firm, we are in fact busier today than we were pre-COVID. 
Uh, and that, that of course reflects the fact that, that COVID has impacted all of our clients uh, and has required them either to be looking at refinancing or adapting a financing structure based on their current cash flows. Uh, it has required them to be putting in place um, uh, additional investments. And at the very least, they've all had to react to this complete change in, in, in business. So the teams, our teams are very busy, um, which is great, um, but we are like most really struggling now to be as effective as we can be for yeah. looking beyond the, the, the virus and, and advising again on longer term issues. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day to, to be able to travel again, you know, to be able to see my clients, talk to people and, and really get up and running. Regarding the, because I, I know body language, you mentioned, mentioned body language and also we're getting a lot of feedback when we're looking at a person and we actually talking to them personally and it's, it's much better than on Zoom or, or on the phone call because we can't see a lot of, lot of things. Do you have any special training for that? Like, do, do you have something in like Rothschild Bank, you have, you, you have every month any like training of how to do actually negotiations or is there anything that uh, you can share with us? So there is a need to be uh, coaching in terms of getting an individual ready. Uh, and that sort of thing happens on a, a almost daily basis with, with your team, if you're, if you're mentoring properly. They don't always realize that. <laughs> they yeah. don't know why I might be forcing them to do something you know, they, they feel un unhappy, they're unhappy about. Um, but look, the, the, the basis of nego negotiation is, is clearly um, communication, number one. Uh, Bankers are notorious for presenting large books of information. Everywhere you go, there's a big book you present. It's a hundred slides, and a hundred slides must be better than fifty slides. And, the, and this nonsense of having bigger and bigger books, more and more colour, great charts, and all the rest of it. And you know, a hundred slides in a sixty-minute, one-hour meeting is pointless. I mean, it, it statistically yeah. can't deal with it. So there's a point at which, uh, and I annoy all of my staff with this. I insist that when they deliver me the product, and they'll always give a big book, I come back and say, before I read that, I want you to produce for me one slide, one PowerPoint slide, to summarize everything in there. And until you can summarize it on one slide, I'm not gonna read it. <laughs> Terribly frustrated. And the first version I come get, you know, I get comes back at sort of font for print on there to try and fit everything in there. <laughs> no, 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 I can't read, you have to tell me in one slide what you're trying to communicate here and the discipline of being able to distill something down to a, just one key slide and it, it must be done uh, puts you in a position to actually know what you're talking about if you know what you're talking about what you want what you're trying to communicate the negotiation clearly becomes easier and 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 it's very important not to to listen in that environment you you, you will gradually influence them to where they need to get to or where i believe they need to get to uh, but you've got to work with it very very carefully to to do that and it it, it also translates the same in, a, in an external negotiation i mean uh, in principle you should never be in a negotiation where you don't already as an advisor i would say this where i don't already know what the answer is going to be uh, very much something i learned in my legal training at university you know as a as a barrister in court you, you would never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to uh, it's too hard to ask a witness a question you don't already know the answer to um, you know it, the, the process of the trial the process of the negotiation needs to be staged so you, you've really dealt with the parties on both sides by having discussions in the background. And then you stay 
your meeting, your negotiation to allow the individuals to jointly get to that conclusion. So yeah, it, it, it requires that patience. It requires not feeling that you as an individual as me needs to be leading that and getting to that aha moment when something is reached in a negotiation, but rather doing a lot of work in the background no. to bring both parties to a position where they will be able to have a meeting of minds on that point. It's about influence. It's, it is about being a little bit slower and taking your time. Uh, and it is psychology, candidly, as you yeah. point out. Yeah, I love that. It's it's all honestly, it's it's so much around coaching on or leadership when you think about it. You know, that's that's all that's the skill that every leader should have. Like that's so important in any business. And uh but I actually didn't ask you how did you or what led you to work with Rothschilds? Like what was before or how that happened? Because I think that was that'll be probably something that will be interesting is interesting for audience to see if there is any you know any any way or road <laughs> to get there well there's many there there, there are yeah, quite so there are there are many many different paths to to get to that sort of point um clearly uh, the the more traditional path is you know you complete your university um uh, education and through the various um, summer internships and such like um, either work for another financial firm or ideally for Rothschild. We, all, we, we run some summer intern programs, both short-term and long-term, um, sometimes across the whole summer, three months, sometimes longer-term internships for a year. Uh, sometimes it might just be a quick exposure for a month or so. So there are plenty of opportunities to sort of enter um, formally as a, as a graduate. Um, I, I didn't do that. I, I left university um, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I, I studied law and decided I didn't want to practice law. I'd studied a degree in commerce, finance, <clears throat> and degree in economics, and didn't really know what I wanted to do there. Yeah. Um, and ended up uh, joining uh, Shell in Australia, um, knowing absolutely nothing about the oil and gas business. So this was a business I knew nothing about. I, I didn't go to Shell because I wanted to work in an oil company. I, I, I was looking for alternatives. They ran a, an interview process to which I attended. And what I found most interesting, in fact, was the nature of their interview process. It was a day, or well, ultimately two days, uh, structured interviews, um, uh, case studies to be worked through. And it was a very, very rigorous um, process. And I enjoyed I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the fact that this must be the way they work and approach problems, if this is what they're testing and looking for. I thought, well, this is a really interesting um, way of running a business. So that the process of interview um, is what attracted me to them. And fortunately, I had a job at the end of that. So that, that's the genesis of where I started in terms of oil and gas business. I then had a great deal of learning to learn about the industry. Yeah. Shell was a great company for, for mentoring and teaching. I, I had 10 years ultimately with them. Uh, and once I had moved through the, the basic training, uh, after a number of years, moved towards the commercial side of the business, uh, which moved into the financing of the business, which moved into mergers and acquisitions, divestments, yeah. uh, et cetera. Uh, and that, that I was very fortunate. path. <laughs> That, 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 that fortunately was, was a global, I, I got to live and work 
in many countries around the world doing that. So I, I benefited from a global exposure uh, dedicated to the industry of oil, gas, energy, uh, and a career path that moved towards financing, mergers, acquisitions, etc. And I got to a point personally where I found that within a company, we spend we spent way too much time studying everything. We were afraid of missing a deal. We had a lot of staff members, so we could look at every deal. Uh, and, and we also looked at every deal the same way because we had a process manual to teach you how to do that. Yeah, most of it's, bank companies. Most, have, most yeah. firms do that. And it struck me that that's not how the real world works. We, the other companies must have a different manual. Uh, the real world operates on different principles. And I, I wanted to... to, to to see what they were. I wanted to test whether I could do a deal myself in the real world without the benefit of a corporate manual. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted an exposure to those different perspectives. Uh, and I felt at the time that the advisory business, the investment banking business, was clearly the location to do that. That's where deals were being done all of the time. Yeah. And that was, that was my first step out. In fact, I started with a boutique advisory firm, uh, Harrison Lovegrove, uh, that that just did oil and gas advisory, mergers, acquisitions, divestments, strategic advice. Uh, and, and that was the start for me. Um, that firm subsequently was purchased by a banking group, Standard Chartered, uh, and then through various other banks, I sort of gathered further experience uh, before spending what was about 18 months, um, 12 months formally, uh, 18 months in discussion with Rothschild before moving to them. Uh, obviously moving in at a senior level is something more of a slower process. We've talked about relationship driven and long term and creativity and, and, and reputation and all the rest of it. Uh, not surprisingly, they did a huge amount of due diligence talking to my clients, to people I've worked with, people I'd worked with at Shell decades before, uh, to really check that this is an individual who hasn't offended too many people along the road as a reputation for reliability uh, for sustainable deals for honesty etc uh, etc et so that that was a a, a a program that took a long time to establish that i had the relevant credentials the relevant credibility but most importantly uh, the the right reputation the firm actively protects their reputation um, uh, and that is about credibility and independence and all of the things we've talked about. So a lot of it took a long time to, to, yeah. to get that role. Um, and it should because my values had to match their values and they were very cautious to protect that. That means it's not real fast success, like just go in, you know, have a job. It's all about what we build up all life i guess you know your reputation is something that you you really work hard on like for a few years but what is another maybe value or the the vision what they have to have you know to actually be able to build up something like that i think the the in addition to those longer term issues and trust issues it, it, the other is very much independence we we really value the fact that what we do, we do so from an independent perspective and without conflict. Another one which we think is important is creativity um, and innovation. It's, it's If we are thinking about our clients over the long term, we need to get really under the skin of our clients and their business, their industry, 
and help them to be innovative and creative. Um, and that, that, that links with our long-term view um, because we're looking to position them through time, not just to get to a deal by the end of this year so we can book some revenue, we get our, our profit recorded and on we go. But we do think uh, creatively and we do encourage people to think creatively. Back to your point about pathways into the firm, I mentioned that you know many graduates will of course come from university through to us, many of those will be financially trained, but many, many are not because creativity is not uniquely linked to those who have done a course in economics. Uh, but you know, we, we, we have a very, very vast array of, of people from very diverse backgrounds, educationally as well as culturally, uh, to be able to enable that element of creativity is very important to us. It's definitely something I, I see is missing in a lot of businesses. And I, I believe that is because uh, I'm doing I'm doing like a small research last six months about like why businesses fail in first five to 10 years. And, and it is big, big thing is definitely relationship, knowledge and skill. And it's that human approach and leadership. And it, the, the big thing is creativity because people, people think that being creative is that you need to be artist, artist or something like you need to be able to draw. But it's, it's not about that. It's be resourceful, I would say, because that's so important. And I believe that is the big thing that probably you need to be super resourceful when I'm thinking, you know, about the deals because you're dealing with different companies and to giving them ideas and innovations, that's that requires really resourceful person or team. You know, it's, it, it, it's not enough for a company to be reactive all of the time. If yes. you react to what others have done around you, you are not leading. Yes. And after reacting too many times, you will start to fall to the bottom of the pack and eventually yeah, exactly. this is the reality. So to, to be a leader in terms of what you do is where the, is the basis of creativity and resourcefulness. Yeah. It's about what have I got? What can I utilize? Because I've, I'm really good at, uh, you know, to position for the future, to take advantage of the current environment and to think about, uh, you know, future trends and directions and not simply copy what others have done in the past. That's really, really easy to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's what companies tend to fall into the trap of doing uh, and tends to lead to failure. Look, the other reality is the people that grew a company tend not to be those who necessarily can continue to grow it into the future. So those who are very good at founding and starting may not be the right mindset to take it forward later. And that, that that's a challenge for people as well to, to just get yeah. thinking, oh, I need to back off and I need to bring in a team of business right. developers or whatever they may be called to take that creative step forward yeah it's a huge gap like there is a huge gap and people people start small business they start to work for themselves and uh somewhere on the line they realize the business is actually growing so much and they didn't actually improve with the business that means they can't really keep up and i guess that's that's a big thing that's why i, I always said knowledge skill and, and trainings and mentoring is so important but I would actually ask, because I know there was, I think, Elon Musk, that he said something like, he will rather die than be poor. And I want to know if there is something, you know, underlying uh, with the Rothschild family, like, is there any, like, a vision or something huge or different, uh, you know, when you compare other people? Because usually those people have really strong visions and very strong op opinions. Is there something in, in Rothschild family? Probably you can share, you probably know. Look, I think I, I comment across the firm. Um, I don't know all of the family members personally to, 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 to comment on their behalf, but 
look, it, I think it's less about, um, it is less about wealth in the sense of, you know, the, the, the statement about not wanting to die poor sort of thing. I think if you were driven by wealth, and I, I, I think it's fair to say the family is not, I can certainly say the firm is not, um, you would be very focused on short-term objectives of getting a deal done this year to make a bit more money. There's a chance to do that and beat someone at something, and that was what you would do. They, are, they have been, I am very cautious to say, we need to sustain for the long term. We're not chasing immediate personal wealth. And I can certainly, obviously, we need to be profitable as a firm to sustain yeah. our product. That yeah. goes without saying. But what I can say, and it was very refreshing, uh, most banks, I've worked at others, Citibank being, a, uh, being one recently as well. As bankers, as deal makers, we still measure monthly and quarterly targets for revenue. Well, most of the deals I work on take at least 18 months to two years to, to get from start to finish. It's very hard to be measuring on a monthly and quarterly basis. Uh, and, and, and Rothschild's very, very clear about that. If things were a bit difficult in a particular market segment, you know, it, it's okay, we'll still do it. We'll, we'll still keep trying. We'll, we'll still be present for two years, three years, four years, five years, because we think that's where we need to be. Uh, but it, you know, we, we don't have to be measuring it quarterly. We don't yeah. even really measuring it annually. And because if we do, and if we put people under that pressure, human nature will lead to some bad yeah. transactions. People will yeah. be pushed into doing something, check yeah. their job, check whatever. And that knocks has a knock-on effect to the firm's reputation. So yeah. I will say, without knowing all of the family members, of course, personally, that the basis of a century plus firm to be successful is yes, being very diligent in maintaining your wealth, in being sensible with your money, but it's about running a firm, which isn't about just grabbing the low hanging fruit and making bad decisions. So yeah. uh, if, 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 if we get to the end of this year and we're a bit poor, then I don't think anyone's worried. Um, <laughs> I, everyone, you know, we'll, we'll pull through in the longer term. Yeah, that means it's more about that legacy, just really, really build up the legacy and, and, and focus on that sustain and sustainability. I think that should be goal of a lot of businesses. Of course, small businesses need to start to be first profitable and need to focus on, on money and cash flow, of course. But I believe that long term thinking should be in all businesses, like you said, you know, like really, really build up reputation, relationships. And I think it's so amazing to see that really similarities in, you know, the quality of the business has to be there. And I'm not going to take more of your time. I will probably just ask at the end some, um, I believe you have some funny stories or something that uh, you would like to share. Well, the Rothschild brand and family is, is, is indeed um, known differently depending on where you are in the world. Now, um, you, you've shared a, a perception that would, would often be heard in, in, in parts of Europe, uh, but certainly in Asia, the Rothschild brand is not known. Uh, the Rothschild brand in Asia is only known for very expensive and high quality wine. Obviously, the Rothschild vineyards mm -hmm. are some of the world's best uh, French vineyards. Yeah. Incredibly famous wine uh, and prohibitively expensive, but probably rightly so. And throughout Asia, we are known as a wine company. And I, I can pull into a lot of offices and, and, and such like my business card and people assume I am there selling wine or some other related 
they simply are unfamiliar with the Rothschild family. In, so in, interesting. In wow. So that in Asia and, and, and the family and the business had to learn this when, when they set up operations throughout Asia. Um, there is a risk and even, even a you know, very, very good business like Rothschild can fall into the mistake of simply saying, well, we'll put our office there, we'll, we'll have it prominently branded and everyone's going to know what we do. Everyone will come to us you know, because that, that's what happens in Europe because they're so well yeah. known. Uh, but in Asia, it, it was not the case. And in fact, a lot of work had to be done to, to position the, the brand outside of the, the vineyard businesses. Yeah, that means they, they come to you <laughs> to buy wine. I love it. <laughs> in the United States, it, it, it has a, a, a different connotation. And in Europe, yes, there are endless number of um, uh, sort of conspiracy theories and such that, 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 that play. Look, I think it's only natural that, you know, a family business that, is, that has outlived governments, that has outlived countries, that has outlived most companies, um, these sort of stories will, will start to, to yeah. crop up. Oh, they, they have uh, to be theories, of course. Like that's, it's, to have, yeah, that, to have that, that much success is also so natural, I guess, that human beings are creating stories because they can't understand how someone was able to create something beyond government you know it's it's really beyond when you think about that like when you talk about the the longevity it is and and equally you know to be fair there is no secret that we advise large companies we advise the senior members of large companies and we are we have a significant sovereign advisory business advising government and and therefore it goes without saying that we have trusted relationships there we have members of our senior staff who come from companies and governments and, and such like and, and that's how we can be successful in in advising in those environments we need to have the right people with the right qualifications um, so look people can look at a distance and say well hey, you know you're advising this government on such and such and such and yeah, yeah but we are and we did it successfully we've continued to do it successfully and we'll we'll continue to do so but yeah the stories are a little bit uh, yeah little bit I, yeah, I know because I, I, I had a few comments and I actually read about that before as well because I know there was 1870s when uh, when actually Rothschild Bank loaned money to Napoleons and basically um, was financing the war, you know, and there was a lot of stuff around First and Second World War as well and uh, helping governments. I think that was, uh, I'm not sure of German and I think there was English government, uh, they got some money and when people ask those questions, I probably will be, I'm not sure what is your opinion, but like, of course, it's the it's the biggest bank in the world. Is there any rule like like yeah, let's let's actually loan money to this person or this government? Uh, so I, I think just you know there, there is a difference between what the family banking business has done in the eighteen um, hundreds to where the Rothschild and Co uh, banking group is today. Yeah. As 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 mentioned, we are an advisory only business. We lend no money. We have absolutely no balance sheet. We don't lend one cent. We have not got so much as a cent to lend somebody. Somebody came to one of our banks and said, we need to borrow money. Our answer is we will give you advice as to how to borrow it because we, we don't have money to lend. Uh, so that's where the business is at today. Um, the, the family, individual family members have whatever individual wealth they have and they invested privately in, in, in their own businesses. Uh, there is a small merchant banking 
division, which really is dealing with hundreds of millions of euros, which does directly invest in companies, but that's a very separate merchant banking business. And it, it's limited to uh, hundreds of millions of euros. It, it tends to do you know, 10, 20 million euro investments in individual companies. So in that sense, just to clarify and make that point, we, we, we don't lend at all. Obviously, we, we advise on how to do it. Are there principles in terms of um, um, what we would do and no-go areas? Look, absolutely. And, and these, are, these are reviewed on a very, very frequent basis. Yeah. Uh, and they are reviewed not only reactively, but also looking forward. So clearly in my sector at the moment, uh, there is very strict, very strict regulations in terms of whether we will do any form of advisory business to a coal-based company, a company with a coal-fired power plant, uh, and the very strict rules whether we would advise the client to buy coal-related businesses, etc. And this this is very clearly linked to the firm's uh, long-term views with respect to uh, environment and climate change. Uh, and, and we will not do, so there is only a very limited number of deals we will do yep. around the country. Uh, and that really is assisting existing companies restructure out of it, as opposed to put new people into yeah. it. And um, yeah, okay, I will probably ask one more question around the, the challenge. What, what is your biggest challenge in this kind of environment? Yeah, look, it, it, it is, um, what is difficult is just not being able to work with people. Um, it, it is the lack of face-to-face -face time uh, with clients to, to, to be as relevant to them. Um, I have had to change my business to be very transactional um, and that's fine. That is part of what we do, but I have been unable to continue on the side of creativity, idea generation, um, etc which candidly requires a sit down with someone face to face to yeah. brainstorm ideas and they are very free flowing conversations that may go everywhere and there'll be a follow up and some of the follow up can be done by telephone etc but these are very very difficult situations to create artificially over a zoom sort of call it yeah. may have a future that that can work but i'm finding it almost impossible Uh, at the moment. So some people feel that they can't. Uh, certain um, countries in North Asia in particular uh, worry that they are perhaps under electronic surveillance in terms of uh, yeah. you know, such that. There are all sorts of things that get in the way of being able to have a free-flowing conversation. And how, how do you keep yourself, I guess, uh, emotionally, let's say, positive? Because you probably have to If, if you have big deal in front, you know, you have big negotiation, you have to be prepared. Of course, you have to have knowledge, but how do you keep yourself uh, fit for that kind of negotiation? It, it, it um, I, I, I said earlier that sometimes it's important to be a step removed as well from a large negotiation. You, you have to do all the homework and all the research and you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, 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 it's exhausting in terms of the work that needs to be done. And I've, I discovered that sometimes a contribution to a negotiation, because often I'm not leading it, often it's my client that will lead it. And so what I'm doing is coaching them. Um, that requires a, a particular discipline to have them coached to be in the right position. 
But inevitably, it also leads to the very difficult situation where 8 p.m. on a Sunday night or whatever, I'm midway through dinner, you get a text message from your client to say, I'm I'm in a board meeting or I'm in a discussion with so-and-so, what's the answer to this? Or what do you think on this? And you don't have the luxury of going away to do some research and coming back and presenting. You've got to be on the spot. Yeah. So the mental gymnastics you've had to do beforehand, you've, you've had to think through scenarios, issues, you've had to really um, tabulate in your mind, you know, the, the, the rationale for something, the other party's rationale for, for looking at this, what's important, what's less important. You, so there's a frame, it depends on the transition, but there's yeah. you sort of goes through multiple frameworks of all of this. And it's, it's having the discipline of, of bringing everything you're looking at together again, it's the discipline of basically putting it all on one slide and understanding what's really fun <laughs> what's driving okay, that's, that's your slide yeah that's <laughs> putting putting all together I, I spend a lot of time people say you're doing nothing and I say well sort of I am I might be walking around comes back to your point about um you know uh, psychology generally but I mean there's certainly psychological studies to say that if you want to think creatively you're better off walking through a part of town you've never walked in before yeah. your mind is firing very very differently because everything around you is foreign everything around you is different the worst thing I can do is stay in my office right here because I'm everything is understandable. My mind's half asleep because I'm in a comfort zone. Everything's predictable. I know where everything is. Any noise I hear, I know what it is. My mind's not active. So the best thing to do is do something entirely different. You know, go for a walk somewhere else, go and do something else. Um, and people say, you're not working. I said, no, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through very, very clearly all these issues. And I, I'm, I will do that until such time as I'm really, really very comfortable. With. Yeah. I read a lot. I read a lot of, of things totally unrelated to what I do in my day job. And I do that because you, you gain a different perspective. You see how people have, maybe it's a history book, maybe it's a novel. You just see how people think, how people have approached a different situation. Yeah. And many times I'll come away from that reading and say, that's an interesting way of thinking about something. Or that, 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 that just enables me to put that to a different sort of approach and framework. You're yeah. constantly gathering ways of thinking, ways of analysing a problem, ways of analysing something. And, and that's just as important as doing the, uh, the due diligence on something. Yeah. Um, I am, now am involved with three volunteer organisations in Perth because I'm, I'm grounded here. But if I'm travelling, I will you know, get myself involved in other activities elsewhere. It's the discipline of taking your mind out of doing one thing the same way all the time and thinking very creatively a lot of, across a bunch of things. Actually, by doing that, you become far more effective at the work you, you, you're currently looking at in terms of negotiation or whatever. Uh, it gives your mind an ability to be distracted. But when solving a problem in a totally different sector, I think, hang on a minute, that's, that's, that's interesting. I, I can bring some of that to, to bear on what I'm working on over here. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I remain very active on all of those sort of fronts to, um, to yeah, try and... I think it's so important because, uh, yeah, studying and, uh, and learning and actually reading and also walking, I absolutely agree, and uh, putting ourselves to different environments is actually definitely... It's, it's helping to, to think from different angles and it's really amazing how I can see that in your job like it's really like a high requirements you know of critical thinking and and looking for from different way of view or point on a one problem or one issue or how to solve it I think that's what everybody should do because that is uh, one saying um, 
that was like doing same thing all over again and expecting different outcome is just insanity i think that was einstein who said that and it's so true these people Absolutely. can't see you know the other angles and you basically are the coach or mentor and helping businesses to innovate and and this is probably the same thing that I've always said. People, people need to have someone. We always have mentors, you know, from, from childhood. We have, we have some teachers, trainers. We always have someone. We have parents. Always someone is around us to helping us to grow. And we are 18 and we stop doing that. Or we have some sometimes, you know, have a boss in the company, but it's not happening all the time for everyone. That means it's always... I always said if it's someone like you, you know, challenging the the thinking and and showing other options is so important to have around. It's hard to it's hard to be creative yeah. and at all of those yeah. things. It's sitting at the same desk, doing the same thing, reading the same newspaper <laughs> day in day out. It, 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 it's, it's an astronomically it, difficult task to be creative. Yeah, it becomes routine. It becomes same thing. It becomes, you know, it, it, and you became lazier to think because you don't need to think because it's the same thing happening every day. That's precisely right. And that, that's, that's why all of those things we've just talked about and, and also just specifically in my job, talking to people all the time is what's so important to get those perspectives, yeah. have a thought to, to help you down a path of creativity. Um, that's why I say I've become very transactional and less creative at the moment. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I've tried to, to, to remedy that with certain things I can do locally, but a bit of that is missing and that, that is a challenge. Um, but yeah, it, 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 is, it is very important to, um, yeah. as you say, to get out and about to, to be creative. Yeah. Thank you very much, Aaron, for everything. I, I really love the conversation with you and we can probably chat about a million other things. I'm happy we didn't go too much into conspiracies. <laughs> And yeah, I think we touched over dinner, over a drink, and um... yeah, <laughs> we can do it next time. Yeah, but we touched the base on like really a lot of important things, and and I really really appreciate that you you mentioned a lot of relationships, creativity, and what is important for every business, and it's not different between any business in Perth or in the world and Rothschild Bank. It doesn't really matter; it's the same, and we should approach it from from that relationship creation and and really be human and be present to our clients and that's probably the biggest thing that I, I took away from our our conversation and thank you very much I will probably let you go for your walk and you can get creative <laughs> thank you for your time thank you Alex and thank you for saying thank you the, the, the other lesson we learn with our clients is exactly as you say being human is um, no matter how big a deal always say please and thank you you know it's it's a basic lesson as you say that we learned as children You'd be surprised how many people forget that you know yeah. both the words but also the principle behind that when when dealing in large with large companies but thank you for your time and uh <laughs> yeah thank you very much and i will see you soon hopefully <laughs> thank you alex yeah bye, bye.